Welcome to the What Next podcast, brought to you by me, Carl Considine. What Next exists to share sober stories with the intention of inspiring change for the better. Whether you're sober, sober curious, or just looking for general life inspiration, we're the podcast for you. Our stories are full of heart and always without judgment. Before listening to this episode, we do discuss themes of self-harm and suicide. Coming up on today's episode, we've got Stephen. Stephen got sober in 2017 following a referral from a counsellor. Counselling and therapy has been a huge part of Stephen's continuing recovery from alcohol and drug addiction. In recovery, Stephen trained to become a counsellor and now works with primary clients with addiction issues and those within the LGBT plus community. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Yes, thank you for having me, Carl. Thank you for coming on and thank you for coming to uh, share your story and talk about your experience. I think a conversation around the mental health impacts of addiction is really important. So I hope people will get a lot from the episode. Um, Shall we take it from the top? And do you want to start with childhood and how that's kind of fed through to your experiences with drink and drugs? Yeah, I suppose jumping, jumping straight in. Um, So I had quite a normal, for want of a better word, childhood until I was about 10. Um, It was sort of a 2.2 family setup with my mum, my dad, and I had a brother. Mm. Where I had my first experience of trauma was when I was about 10, my mum died. And that, obviously, I didn't become an addict at 10. But that, when I trace back my story, that's the moment where everything sort of leads back to Mm. um and obviously losing your mum at 10 it's my whole sort of sense of safety in the world completely changed and I was very much a mummy's boy um and you sort of feel invincible don't you as a child and that was a big thing that got taken away from me I just stopped trusting the world I stopped trusting that bad things weren't going to happen and the other side of that, sort of along with the the grief, the bereavement, everything that goes along with that, was I felt, I started to feel very different from my peers, from the people around me. And it was at the age when I was just about to go to big school. Um, so I started that experience at 11 of going into secondary school, all of those things, which are quite scary things for a, mm. a little boy anyway. Mm. Um just not in a place to be able to to cope with it really. And that experience just dominoed through my teen years, eventually culminating in the in the addiction. Um I'd say trauma as I understand it, and it's not me who's who's made this up, it's stuff I've heard from from other people particularly i want to mention him because i'm going to be quoting him quite a lot through this most probably but gabor mate who's done a lot of work on addiction and trauma um he describes trauma as being not what happens to you but what happens inside of you as a result of what happens to Mm. you and that really resonates because it wasn't necessarily just my mum dying which was this horrible horrible thing it was that me after that had had no real support i mean people tried to help me i'm not blaming but a death like that in a family everyone was grieving Mm. and i was sort of left alone with all of this hurt all of this fear and 
that led to me being a very, very unhappy pre-teenager. Um, and yet ultimately into trying to find coping mechanisms, none of which were particularly healthy. Mm. So how did that, that sounds really tough and happening, like you said, at such a pivotal moment in your, as an adolescent, as a young person growing up, how did that manifest and what sort of behaviours or how did that come out as you were growing up as a, as a young lad? So I suppose initially it was, I was very quiet when I was at school. Um, I didn't mix very well. I didn't want to make friends with anybody. Um, I didn't want to be there. That was a big part of it. I kept on leaving. Mm. Um, I'd get upset in lessons and no one knew because I'd changed schools what had happened. Um, and it was very recent. So my mum died in July and I went to school in September. So it was very, very fresh. And no one really understood why I was the way I was, why I was so troubled. Um, and that made me feel like a freak. You know, you're looking around the classroom at age 11 and everyone else is sat there having a good time, laughing, making friends. And you're sat there trying not to cry. And it's like, why, why can't I be like them? Why, are, you know, so much jealousy, so mm. much self-blame for it. And eventually I got sent, that was my first experience of counselling, was off the back of my behaviour in year seven, because I kept on leaving classes unexpectedly, trying to go home. I got sent to a counsellor and I used those words, like specifically I got sent to a counsellor because that's really how it felt. It felt like I was a problem and I was being sent somewhere to have that problem fixed. Mm. And that was a narrative I carried for a really long time because as much as now... I can see it for what it was. Like the reason I was struggling was because I had more things to contend with than a lot of the other people in that class. Mm. It didn't feel like that at the time. It felt like I was doing something wrong and counselling felt like a, like a punishment and something that othered me. Yeah. I think um, I hear this quite a lot um, and I hope you don't mind me saying, but it, when I speak to other addicts and we know each other through support groups mm. and you know, you hear people talking about their experiences. There seems to be like a common thread or a theme with people having experiences like this growing up. And I'm not saying every addict has had a traumatic experience as a child, because that's just not the case. But there seems to be a common thread with people feeling different or feeling like um, something's wrong with them or they've done something wrong, which sounds like quite similar to what you're describing. And even without a, a traumatic experience, people might feel different because, you know, maybe they're gay or, you know, how they identify sexuality, et cetera, et cetera. And it's that, that's really deep, right? Because it links back to the story that you're telling yourself about, like something's wrong with me, who I am and am I worthy and I'm different. And it, it it seems to be that that then carries through into, well, what's my, how do I get out of my head and not feel like that? I'm going to pick up a drink or um, I'm going to take drugs or um, even if the outlet's not drink or drugs, right? There's people look for an outlet, don't they, to not feel like that? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I looked for a lot of outlets before I found drinking. You know, the first thing I did was self-harm. I was very 
I say into it, I don't know if you can say you're into self-harm, but it was the first real coping mechanism I found was cutting myself. Mm. And that was really the beginning of my addiction. You know, that was my first addiction. And that started happening when I was about 12. And it was when you don't have a way to cope, you look to find one. And yeah. I think the beautiful thing about humans is we've all got this innate desire to heal ourselves and to get better and to cope. You know, we don't want to go down with the ship. Um, and again, going back to Gabor Mate, a huge thing he says is when looking at addiction, it's not what's wrong with it, it's what's right with it. Mm. And how I understand that is, you know, I was a, a teenager, a young child in a lot of pain and I needed something to cope and initially that was self-harm and it served a purpose. I'm not by any stretch endorsing it as something people should do. But at the time that was, that was something that I needed to cope. And you could say exactly the same thing a couple of years later when I'm 14 of alcohol and then drugs. It was something I needed to bridge this gap between how I felt mm. and how I wanted to feel. And you know, obviously being gay, I'm a gay man myself, as you know. Um, <laughs> that was a huge part of it as well as I started getting older. And I think when I sort of look at my life as a whole, my teenage years, my early 20s, it was just one thing after another. And I think I kept on trying to get myself on my feet. And every time I tried to do that, something new would happen or something new would come up and I, and I wouldn't be able to. I just never had that space. Mm. It's like I was in the, this is how I sort of visualize it, being in the sea and I'm getting hit by waves and one will knock me over. So, you know, I'm 10, my mum dies, this wave comes, knocks me over. Took me a couple of years to try and get up from that. And when I sort of did, something else had happened mm -hmm. and it was just me sort of scrabbling around trying to cope with what was going on around me. And you can only cope with, with the skills you have at the time and, yeah. You know, it's a lot to expect a 12-year-old to cope with. Yeah. And if the waves keep coming right, that you've only got so much stamina, you can't, unless you're building up the strength and the tools to be able to deal with them, you can't continue just taking that rap. It's like um, the chap that you're quoting, he talks about, is it Gabor Mate? Yeah. Yeah. He talks about... Um, trauma as a wound as an open wound and um, I really like how he describes if you have like a physical wound you know if you have a gash or whatever and you go straight to the hospital and you get it stitched up right and it heals but people have these psychological traumas from whatever experiences that they've they've lived through which creates an open wound in your brain in your mind and then they go through life without ever treating them or treating them through, um, you know, not necessarily maybe the most appropriate means, i.e. getting into what happened and working through it. Um, and so we've got these open wounds that exist as a result of trauma and these experiences, but they're kind of undealt with. So we're, we're plugging the gap with something else, right? So how did that kind of transition then into, you've touched on, kind of leaning into there was the self-harm and then later in life leaning into drink and drugs what did that look like what did that progression look like 
I mean, it was it was almost seamless um, in that I stopped self-harming when I was about 14 and I started drinking when I was 14. Mm. And the reason I stopped self-harming was because I cut myself really badly one time um, unintentionally and it really, really frightened me. Um, and that was sort of enough to to scare me into not doing that anymore. But what then happened, because I'd found drinking by that point, that became the coping mechanism. And I grew up in a in a pub, which didn't help things, as you can imagine. So it was very much available. Um, I grew up around a lot of people who drank. Um, I had when I was 14, so this is sort of the second wave, I had a stepmother who wasn't very kind to me. Um, and it was quite an unhappy home for a few years. And that was around the same age as well, where I'd found out about alcohol. I'd found out about drugs. And it sounds almost cliche because it wasn't like I was unhappy at home. So I'm going to go out and take drugs. Mm. It was more my options as a 14 year old were I can stay at home and get shouted at by this woman who I hate. Or I can go to the park with my friends and have a drink and have a spliff. Mm. And it's like, which one would you do? Mm. You know, of course, that's more appealing. And for me, that was then very, very quick. I went from alcohol to drugs within a year, I'd say. Um, you know, having my first experience of being drunk at 14, my first spliff at 14. And by the time I was 15, I was very heavily into cocaine um, to the point that I was taking it most days. Mm. Um, and it opened up this sort of new world that hadn't been there previously. You know, I was building a sort of community. It wasn't a very good community, mm. you know, but it was a community. And I was finding a place where I fit. You know, I spent all of my time with my friends. I was spending time with a lot of people who were older than me. I was taking a drug that in the moment makes you feel very, very good and very, very confident. Mm. And I just got swept along with it. Um. So yeah, that's in, I can't remember how you phrase the question, but in real time, that's what happens. Yeah. So it was quite quick. Yeah. It was like a, a red rag to a ball, you know, I'd found something that really worked, yeah. you know, that really made me feel different. And I didn't, it's easy sort of talking about it with, with retrospect and hindsight. I didn't know that's what was happening. Mm. Just, it felt good. So I carried on doing it. Mm. I really identify with that, you know, I think I had a quite a difficult childhood and um, my parents separated when I was young and um, I had a few different step parents in my life that um, I didn't particularly enjoy and they didn't make home life very pleasant and where you talk about, okay, well, my options are, I used to go to the park exactly as you described and I started drinking when I was 13 and we'd go and buy cider and we'd go sit in the park and we'd smoke and we'd drink cider and, and just get smashed. And, um, yeah, I got really similarly swept up by that very quickly. And I think there's something in where you talk about like feeling kind of part of something and, you know, the people that you were mixing with, I think there's something in if home life's not great and you've got these feelings of I'm different or something's wrong with me and then you surround yourself with other people that are drinking in the way that you want to drink and are taking drugs in the way that you want to take drugs. 
you do feel part of something and um it's almost like romanticized in a way isn't it um because it's that sense of belonging and sense of even though what you're doing is not healthy and actually is really toxic and really damaging it's fulfilling like a bit of a hole and a bit of a purpose within yeah definitely i suppose not just just while you were talking then it's for me it wasn't just a sort of community aspect it also gave me a real sense of identity almost Mm. and you know that kind of age 14 15 you're you're biologically going through huge periods of development your brain is still massively developing you're trying to figure out who Mm. who you are and like the glamorization of it, it felt cool. It felt grown up. It felt like yeah. I was having this secret life that people couldn't touch and people couldn't take away from me. You know, my family didn't know that I was doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it gave me sort of something to define myself as. Not that I was 15 thinking I was an addict. That's not how I'd have phrased it up at all. No, but, no. but thinking, oh, I'm quite wild, you know, like I'm cool adventurous i'm doing all of these really cool things like i'm sick because when you're 15 you're sat in a 26 year old's house mm-hmm. passing drugs around like it does seem cool it does seem grown up um and yeah it's it, it started to give me some esteem almost mm. yeah it's so strange because my experience is exactly the same and i was i left school when i was 14 and um was doing all of that stuff i was going to clubs and hanging out with people in their 20s it, you know i never hung around with people that were my age and they were all drinking and, and taking drugs and i was drinking and taking drugs and it was really yeah it was glamorized and i definitely didn't think that it was problematic i thought it was incredible and i thought i was the bee's knees essentially and you know in my mind i was probably 10 years older than what i actually was but like you say I was still going through development myself as a young adult. Um, But I know that for me, I think that was definitely driven by me just wanting to be like part of something and feel some sort of worth and feel some sort of connection to something that was not my home life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, exactly, exactly that, you know, it, it's a, it's a way of coping. And I think I've, I became a teacher for several years after I um after I graduated obviously I didn't start doing it before but and seeing kids sort of that age um the age I was like 14 15 really brought home to me how young I actually was when these things were happening you know mm. because I I think what's really dangerous about that age is you think you understand mm. you think you're very grown up you think you've you look almost like an adult but you're not you know, and your brain isn't developed fully. And one of the ways it isn't developed fully is not really being able to project into the future as well. I mean, that's why teenagers tend to get so angry about things. It's because they live in the present and that sort of risk, you know, we all talk about it, don't we? The things you do when you're 20, you couldn't do when you're 30, you know, like bungee jumping, that kind of things, because there's just no fear. Mm. And I didn't have any fear of where that was going to potentially lead me. And I didn't know, I didn't have the information And I don't want to turn this into like a public service announcement, but, you know, if you start drinking below the age of 18, your chances of becoming an alcoholic triple. You know, if you start using drugs, the younger you start using them, the more like this this science that proves that because your brain is developing and that makes it sensitive. 
I mean, I never had a chance. <laughs> yeah. God, that's so interesting. I, but you feel invincible, right, as well? Yeah, and all the cocaine doesn't, doesn't, doesn't help diminish that feeling, does it? No, no. So um, how did that then progress? So, you know, we're still kind of around, what, 15, 16 here. Uh, what happened next? Well, it went badly. Um, so I, like I said, I was using it all the time. And I don't, I say I don't know how, I do know how. I was getting the money for it. I was stealing it. That's the truth of it. We, we might edit that bit out. I'll tell you after. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was stealing it, you know, because I was desperate to get hold of these drugs. So I was taking it all the time and people started to notice. Um, my brother found out. Um, I was probably about 17 by then. And I was. it was MDMA he called me with. And I was just doing it in the family pub. Mm. And I'd got to such a place of confidence with drug use um, that I didn't even go to the toilets to do it. Do you know what I mean? I was just slipping around the corner and taking some and he walked in and I had this bag in my hand and at this point I would have been in college at sixth form and I'd not been for about three months and sort of the the whole thing sort of imploded um so my brother had found out he'd got a phone call from my school being like if he doesn't come in tomorrow he might as well not come back there's no point um I was really really skinny i looked very unhealthy it was very clear there was something very wrong with me mm. um and that was the first time i was really forced to address addiction in any meaningful way was when i was 17 and how i addressed it i largely stopped taking drugs at that point um for a while um i stopped taking cocaine which was at that point you know my drug of choice that was the thing i used the most mm. i stopped taking it and I was old enough by then, you know, I was like probably 16, 17 to be able to go in the pub and for that to be an acceptable thing. So it just shifted more to alcohol as the, the primary mm. substance. And I tried to give myself credit. I tried very hard to avoid cocaine. Like I understood as I understood it then I had a problem with cocaine. Nothing else. Yeah. Um, so I stopped taking the cocaine and I did. Um, and it got a lot better for me for a while, you know, because the the transition to alcohol slowed down what had been a very, very quick progression into complete annihilation. Mm. And I was able by switching to have a little bit of an upswing. Um, and that was, again, one of the sort of waves, you know, like I had these, I kept on having these periods of maybe things are going to be okay. Maybe I'm going to overcome um, and alcohol gave me the illusion I was getting better. And I think there's a point societally there as well that when I was 16 and I was taking cocaine four or five days a week, it was very, very clear to everybody that I had a very serious problem. But when I was 17 and I was drinking four or five times a week, I was just your typical 17-year-old. Mm. But it was exactly the same. Mm. It's a drug. Alcohol is a drug. It's just legal. It will have the same, used in the same way, it will have the same consequences, the same impacts. It might take a bit longer to get there, right? As opposed to heroin or cocaine or whatever. But it's a legalized drug, essentially, that 
in the world, in society, we're able to promote, we're able to advertise it. And it's part of our culture, isn't it, growing up? If you think about um, being a young person and working towards 18 and having your first drink and all of that type of thing, it's that's just totally normalised in our culture. Yeah, it really is. It's a rite of passage, you know, your, mm. your first pint with your dad, first legal pint, all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, first, it, it's just, it's completely accepted. And I suppose, especially those age ranges we're talking about, um, you know, say 16 to about 23, it's almost accepted that you're not going to be able to drink successfully, you know, mm. that it's not going to be in moderation. It's like, you're testing your weight, you're figuring it all out, you go to university, the whole point of it is, I mean, maybe it's not the whole point of it to some people, but for me, the, the whole point of university was to have the sort of Hollyoaks-esque experience yeah. and go wild. And to build up your drinking stamina. Yeah. And I was already pretty seasoned by the time, you know, I had a cocaine addiction under my belt by the time I got to <laughs> university. Um, so yeah, it just, it was so normal. And I think it's just such an easy place for addiction to hide is in those young adult years mm. and you talk about your brother so it you were 17 it was clear cocaine was a problem and your brother kind of noticing that and so did the people around you then see you stop doing coke and just drink as you know a normal person for want of a better description and then was the spotlight taken off you were, were things did things quieten down what happened there yeah they, they did they quieted down and completely mm. it was problem solved do you know what i mean and because my behavior changed um positively from switching um yeah it seemed as if the problem had just righted itself and you know in that year sort of 17 to 18 so i was doing my a levels then i was able to claw everything back just you know and i, I got i got my a levels like in this sort of interim period so prior to that i'd decided not to go to university in that year when I stopped taking cocaine and started drinking, um, I decided to again. Um, and yeah, I managed to write to steady the ship mm. to a degree. Mm. And that got a lot of people off my back. And the years that followed that really from 18 to 21 um, were some of the better years for me. Um, I was still drinking every day, but it was fun drinking and the consequences had lessened um I did okay at university you know I, very early on I remember thinking I can either work really hard and get a first or I can have a good time and probably get a 2-1 or a 2-2 two two, and that didn't seem like a unfair trade-off yeah. to me like I'll do that one um but it was for want of a better word my drinking at that point was a lot more normal than my addiction had been previously what sort of took over those years was my sexuality, which was another of these sort of waves. Another wave, yeah. Um, because then there was this new confusion. And obviously growing up, I, don't, I, didn't, I didn't know. I say I knew now. I can tell now when I look back that I knew. Mm. But I would not have, I didn't know. <laughs> Mm. and obviously you're gay so you understand mm. what I mean by that it sounds almost paradoxical doesn't it like I knew there was something different about me I knew I liked boys but I didn't really understand that that made me gay and I was sort of holding out some hope that maybe I could fix it yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah 
that really compounded all the feelings of being different, something wrong with me. Yeah. Um, having a secret, you know, having this huge, huge secret and drink made me braver in that arena. The two things became so enmeshed because I'd only do anything with boys when I was, and I, I mean men to be very clear, <laughs> <laughs> adult men, um, <laughs> when I was intoxicated. Yeah. Um, and then the next day I didn't experience all of this shame around it. Yeah. And that cycle just carried on most of the way through university. And I suppose this isn't very linear, um, but something else that happened when I was 16, because I knew I was gay then. I remember I'd been to the Rocky Horror Show the first time I'd been to anything like that. Nice. And I'd dragged up, you know, very, very typically straight 16-year-old, you know, like I got high heels, I got a bask, and I went to this Rocky Horror Show and I got blind drunk. And that, that was the first time I'd ever really been in a, in a LGBT type space, type environment mm. where people were dressing the way they wanted to dress. No one was shading me, you know, I wasn't getting called names for being dressed in high heels. I wasn't being called anything. Mm. And it felt right. Felt very right. You know, <laughs> you um, felt at peace. I did. Like I felt fabulous um, <laughs> at 16 and I came home that night. And when I say home, I mean to the pub and my dad was there and I was, I was, it was one of the drunkest I'd been. Um, like I passed out on the toilet floor and I started crying outside, all of this stuff. And I told my dad while I was hammered that I was gay. Right. And um, I don't really remember much after that. But I do remember the next day I woke up hungover, but 16-year-old hangovers, which are much more manageable than what they became. And I went to talk to my dad. Um, and I remember he was sat in the office at the pub. And I walked in and I was terrified terrified and i walked in and he looked at me and he said like is what you said last night true and i don't want to mind read i don't know what was going on for him but he looked so frightened mm. he looked so on edge he looked angry and i said no i don't know why i said it and that I didn't come out till I was 21 after that. Right. You know, and what I learned from that interaction, from that experience was it definitely isn't okay for me to be gay. Mm. It's going to upset people. It's going to make people angry. It's going to make my family unhappy. And I suppose going back to what we were saying at the beginning with sort of trauma, I mean, that was a traumatic experience for me, yeah. you know, that, that one interaction. And I think reframing what we call trauma yeah. is helpful too, you know, because you sort of say trauma, you, you imagine, you know, PTSD, like people in, people in wars, people who've been in these horrible accidents, people who've been in abusive relationships. And it isn't just that, mm. you know, it's feeling that wound and being left alone with that wound. Mm. For me, that's what causes trauma. And again, that just felt like another, another blow in me ever being okay. Because if you're gay and it's not okay for you to be gay, 
and you're beginning to realize, and that was my process sort of between 18 and 21, I was beginning to realize I, I can't make this go away. Mm. You know, I'm not going to be able to change this. Where does that leave you? Mm. And I suppose what that led to me, led me to was just wanting to get out of my head more and more and more. And there was drinking. Mm. Yeah, I really feel that. that I like that description of like trauma is not necessarily this really tangible, explicit experience, but emotional trauma, right, is as a human being, like stripping it back to the fundamentals, not being able to just live as the person that you think you are and disclosing the person that you think you are to the most important person in your life, right? Your mum's not around, so you've just got your dad and that not being clearly like acceptable based on his response, that's that's huge. And it when you're coming from the place that you were already coming from anyway with all of the other waves that had hit, it kind of reinforces those negative thought patterns about yourself it does this like shame train isn't it like just it kind of just adds to the velocity and the speed of the shame train and it it tops it up and you just carry that i really identify with that i I remember coming out to my dad and um he said to me no you're not and i was like okay this is how this is going to go um and I was like, dad, I am, I, you know, I'm gay. I was 17 at the time. And like you, I'd spent a lot of time thinking about it, but not thinking that it was a problem for want of a better description and and um, not even really knowing what it meant or what it was. For a long time, I felt like all men had thoughts, like the thoughts that I had. So I knew I was attracted to men and I wasn't attracted to women but I thought all men felt like that and people, you know, men just got married to women, but they were still attracted to other men. And maybe that was my way of internally just normalizing how I felt. But yeah, it's, I had a similar experience with my dad and um, it took him a little while to come round with that. But it definitely, I grew up with feelings of shame and I grew up with issues around kind of self-worth and um, I definitely found, uh, spoiler alert, an outlet in, in drink and drugs. Mm. So how did that, at what point did you get to, you'd had an experience when you were 17 at acknowledging and recognizing something that was problematic, which was cocaine. At what point did you recognize that alcohol was problematic and start to think about that or start to process or kind of implement some sort of change? Well, (laughs) um, that's quite a question, isn't it? (laughs) So ultimately it was when I was 26. However, when I was 23, um, so I finished university Mm. and I I moved to Thailand. I moved to Bangkok which in retrospect was not my greatest move. Um, And I'd come out by then, all of that had kind of been semi-resolved. And again, I was sort of on another upswing where I'd finished my degree. I was going to go and teach in Thailand. Um, So I moved over there 
And I had two years there where, again, I was still drinking all the time, but it was fun still. It was sort of an extension of university and that's what I'd wanted it to be. Mm. Um, and if I look back on it kindly, what I was doing was creating a space for myself. You know, I, I needed to remove myself from everything that had gone before and start afresh somewhere. And Thailand gave me that opportunity. Um, and my drinking there for the first couple of years was manageable. And how my drinking always was during that period was 90% fun, 10% breakdowns. Like that's how I'd sort of do the split. Like sometimes I would get drunk and I'd start crying and I wouldn't know why. Sometimes I would get drunk and I'd lock myself in a room and have a knife and be cutting chunks out of myself. But that was rare. Mm. The more common thing was I'd go out with my friends and have a good time and do something stupid. Where that shifted, and this was the, the big wave that came, was my dad died when I was 23. Really suddenly, I'm on the other side of the world. I get this phone call in the morning. I've just gone into work. I've got this class of year one kids I'm supposed to be teaching. And I get this phone call from my brother. And he's clearly crying, clearly distressed. Mm. And I was in the staff room and I walked out. And I was like, what's happened? What's happened? Because you get, you get a phone call at eight in the morning from another continent where you know it's like one in the morning there. So this isn't good news. And mm. we're um, saying, is it, my, is it my nan? Is it my grandma? He said, no. And I, and I knew, I knew what he was going to say. I knew my dad had died. For the context clues, I guess. And he said it. And I just, how, how could life be that unfair to someone? Mm. You know, like I'm 23. I've lost my mum. I've lost my dad. It's impossible. Like, that's not... Weirdly, my mum dying didn't make me feel prepared for the fact that someone else could die. It felt like, statistically, well, that's my one. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It's mm. not going to happen again. Lightning doesn't strike twice, all of that kind of thinking. It just... This death just floored me. And I remember being sat in the office at work. People were being really kind to me. I'd had to give the phone to someone because I couldn't speak. And I remember the first thing I said was, I need a drink. And that moment, that death was the thing that it, was in, it didn't cause my addiction. It had always been there, but I just fell over the cliff mm. of my addiction at that point because I was in so much pain. I felt so alone. I felt so isolated. I didn't know where I belonged. I didn't know where I fit. I gave up. Mm. And those three years following on from that were the darkest three years of my life. Um, my mental health was just in tatters. I, I re-engaged with therapy. I'd, I'd, I'd dipped in and out of therapy for years, but after a while, it just, someone told me like, you need to go and see a therapist because my friends were all terrified of me. Not, you know, because I was saying boo, you know, but they were terrified of what was going to happen to me because mm. they could see we, you know, we were a bunch of 23-year-old idiots. You know, that was the truth of it. And one of that group was having a complete mental breakdown in a foreign country with no support, no safety net, nothing. That's a lot for someone else to have to contend with. Mm. So I went to see this therapist and I started exploring some of this stuff, but it just didn't touch the sides of where I was. You know, it was too big for me. Mm. Um, and drinking then just became my best friend um 
I started drinking daily, which I'd kind of done before. You know, it wasn't rare for me to go a week where I drank every day, but the intention almost shifted. I started drinking as something that I needed and I knew that I needed. Mm. You know, drinking had helped me sleep. That was something I used to tell myself, like, I'll have a few beers and I can sleep. And again, the reality of it was, like, if I didn't have those drinks, I had nightmares, Mm. really horrible nightmares about my dad dying. And at that time in my life, you know, right, right from the start of this, when we said, you know, it's not what's wrong with it, what's right with me. Mm. So what's right with it? Like, I fully believe if in that period of my life I'd not had alcohol, I'd be dead. And it, it was like being in an abusive relationship with, with a substance, you know, like it's, you know, it's called, it's called alcohol abuse, drug abuse. Mm. Now, alcohol and drugs are inanimate objects. They're not getting abused. Mm. I'm getting abused. <laughs> by them you know when it was good to me it was good to me you know it helped me sleep it felt like a hug you know it felt like this thing that I'd always have and by this point I didn't trust people to stick around you know everyone people I'd love like my mum my dad my family like where were they but where's vodka going you know what I mean mm. it's not going to leave me mm. um and I couldn't see how well it was making me because it felt like the thing that was keeping me sane was that I had this. And what happened over those three years, just more and more, I began to lose my grip on reality. Mm. Um, I started taking drugs again, you know, Xanax, Dizepam, weed and other drugs, you know, Coke, just anything, anything, because I don't care. And that's a dangerous place for an addict to be in. You know, I'd, mm. I'd given up on it. I, I don't really care what happens to me anymore. Mm. And, you know, I suppose trigger warning, there's going to be some talk of suicide here. Um, that was the beginning of, of suicidal ideation and then suicidal intent. And where it sort of, I remember where it started. The first time I really thought about suicide was on the plane home after my dad had died. And I had a load of Xanax with me for the flight. And I was taking them and I was drinking wine. I was taking them and I was drinking wine. And the first time I'd ever done that had already happened. And I remember thinking, oh, I need to be really careful here because this can be a really dangerous combination. And this time it was like, if I die, I die. Mm. If I die, I die. And that was the seed that grew into eventually when I was 26, making a, an attempt on my life, which was the catalyst for me eventually addressing my addiction is that the longest answer you've had so far do you think no no it's just um it's tough right you went through so much in such a short period of time and um i hope it's not inappropriate to say but it's kind of like well you know that no wonder you drink kind of thing if that's what life has thrown at you um and that i really kind of recognize that transition from daily drinking but just having a drink every day to the transition to like essential daily drinking because I need it because it's self-soothing it's kind of self-medicating and my last couple of years of drinking were exactly that exactly that it had gone from um I knew it was problematic but also I needed to have a drink and in the same way I would have, I would have a drink and then I would want to take drugs and I didn't particularly care which ones I took. And, and yeah, trigger warning, I had similar experiences with suicidal ideation and 
you're doing all these things, right? Uppers and downers, I drink and then I take a lot of cocaine and um, then off one of my dealers, I, I could buy diazepam. So when I'd kind of get to the end of, end of a binge, I'd take some diazepam to go to bed with and that thought process that you described on the plane, I used to think that all the time. I'd, I'd go to bed and I'd take a few diazepam and I'd just think it would just be easier if I didn't wake up because tomorrow I'm going to have to do all of this again. And I knew like the consequences were building up around me and they were kind of stacking up. And to your point, I knew that friends and family were really worried about me and I couldn't see like a way out or how that could ever possibly change, how I could ever possibly feel different. That is like what you're talking about. It's like rock bottom, right? It's you kind of down there. So what, when you hit 26, what was it? What was the catalyst? So I know for me, rock bottom, you know, it was an internal thing, you know, Mm. it wasn't, you know, you've just sort of talked about the consequences there and how worried people were and all of those things. And those things were true for me as well. Mm. But when I really think about what it was that brought me to my knees with it, where it's like, I can't, I can't go on. I used to think that something inside of me had been irreversibly broken. Mm. Like that's how I used to sort of picture it. Mm. Like something that everyone has and everyone needs in me, I don't have, it's gone. It's been damaged in a way that I'm never going to be able to fix and I'm never going to be okay because whatever that thing is, it's gone and it's not coming back. Life has won. These things that have happened to me have destroyed it. And I suppose the closest thing I can think to describing that as is hope, you know, Mm -hmm. like my hope had gone. And from that, I was just careering from disaster to disaster getting closer and closer to the inevitable end you know and I just sort of accepted that I'm probably going to die here now the catalyst was and I might be wrong here but I'm going to check like so it's it was dry January which I believe was part of how this podcast started so was it or not yeah no it's part of the story yeah yeah, yeah it's part so of the journey i remember when i'd heard that like that was very true for me so dry january i decided i was going to do um a dry january mm. to sort of fix everything and it didn't go very well i drank on the first of january then i had two days off where i had alcohol poisoning and then i drank on the fourth of january all the way up until when i eventually stopped altogether mm. um but that that experience of trying very 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 hard that was my last gasp you know what i mean that was yeah. my last thing right i'm gonna do dry january i'm i'm willing to not drink for a month which was huge at that point yeah and i'm gonna try and get some breathing space and sort this out that was my last attempt at solving things and to find myself at five o'clock on january the first with a drink in my hand it was like i am i can't do that I, i'm i'm screwed yeah i'm screwed I, I i've no means of getting out of this and then I was really just drinking without any kind of hope. Mm. And that led me to this suicide attempt. So I was living in Bangkok and I lived in this 27-story building. And I went up to the roof absolutely off my face on alcohol, diazepam, weed, all of those things. And I went up and I climbed over all of the barriers. And I was just leaning over the edge. And it was like 
my my brain was just attacking me. It was like jump, jump, jump. Like, and it's not necessarily that I wanted to die. Mm. I just, I can't carry on. I can't. Like, it's going to make, and in that moment, it felt like everyone would be better if I wasn't here anymore. You know, all my friends were angry with me. All my family were angry with me. I was in pain. What's the point of me? Mm. What's the point of me being here doing this? And I don't really know what it was that pulled me back from that um, because I blacked out. Now, whether that was blacking out because of how many drugs I'd taken off from trauma, I don't know. I don't mm. know. And it used to really bother me that I didn't remember what happened, but I've just accepted now that I'm not supposed to know. But the day after that, I woke up um, and it was the first time... I, I really thought, like, I really thought this is this is going to kill you mm. really soon. It's do or die. You know, it's do or die time. And I went to a therapy appointment. And one thing that I'd always sort of, I'd always sort of kept up for the last few years of my drinking was I went to this therapy appointment every week and talked about what was going on. And it was getting madder and madder. Do you know what I mean? The things mm. I was talking to him about. So I went to the therapy appointment and for the first time ever, I talked about drinking in it. And I said, when I start drinking, I can't stop. And I'm scared. Mm. That was about as honest as I was able to be about it. Mm. And he said, well, maybe you should look at getting some support around that and stopping. And... I wanted him to say, why don't you try mindful drinking? Do you know what I mean? Why don't you, something like there's a drug he's going to be able to give me that's going to make me be able to yeah. do it normally. That's what I wanted him, desperately wanted him to say. Yeah. And he said, well, you should probably stop. You know, it's not going to get any better. It's the last thing you want to hear though, isn't it? Oh, you want to say that? Yeah. Um, you know, if I'm an, yeah, like if you're an alcoholic, it's only going to get worse. Like you, you, you're going to have to stop completely. And I left his office and I went to the pub immediately afterwards. And that was, that ended up being my last drink. Right. Was that day. Um, because I was sort of armed with information to a degree. And I think that's what's so important about mm. therapy is like, I'd understood from him that I couldn't drink successfully. That, that had been implanted and I couldn't unsee it. Mm. From trying and failing to do dry January, I'd learned that me trying to stop drinking on my own wasn't going to work. No. And that day I learned the final lesson, which was I stood outside this pub for an hour, you know, and the day before I've tried to kill myself, the stakes couldn't have been higher, mm. you know? Mm. And I knew that if I went in and I drank, I knew I was going to be there all day. I knew I was going to drink to blackout and oblivion. I knew I was going to cry. I knew I was going to get upset. I knew I was going to feel depressed. And potentially I knew I was going to try and take my own life again. And I couldn't not go inside. You know, I couldn't not do it. Mm. And somewhere amongst that last drink, the the clarity came of either this is going to, you know, my addiction, my mental health, whatever you want to call it, either this is going to overcome me or I'm going to overcome it. And something shifted. Mm. And... You know, the day following that, I went to a, a support group for addiction and 
that was the beginning of everything changing. Mm. So you spoke about going to a support group and it sounds like the thing actually that got you there was a professional saying to you, a therapist saying to you, this isn't going to get any better. And for whatever reason, that got through right. You heard it, uh, even though you'd known about this problem for such a long time, you're at that. I hear people saying like the gift of desperation and you're kind of at that point of something has to change. It's do or die. Like you say, I've got to do something different. So you, that was your catalyst into seeking help. So what happened then? What, what did your recovery look like from that point onwards? Well, it, it was just completely different. Um, my attitude, my outlook, um, and I think you know, in, in therapy, they talk about the sort of stages of change and where you are on that journey. Mm. And I think I'd been sort of in a contemplation stage. I wasn't really willing to make any changes to my life. Mm. And the mix of the, the attempt and what this therapist had said to me, just something had shifted and I was ready to make changes. I was ready to, to do whatever I needed to do to try and get better mm. um and that for me meant letting go of a lot of anger towards a lot of people letting go of a lot of my story and the tragedies therein and accepting that you know I am where I am and I am the only person who's got a shot at fixing this mm. and you know, in the same way, when I was a little boy going through grief, you know, I was doing the best I could with the tools that I had then. New tools became available to me and I started using them. So I got involved with a support group. Um, I got very actively involved. You know, I made friends, I made connections, I listened to people, I took their advice. I continued doing therapy somewhat sporadically alongside that and mm. one of the things I really liked about this therapist is when I'd started going to this support group it was very clear that it was helping me in a way that nothing he'd done had and he said to me you know if you want to just focus on that for a while and stop coming that's absolutely fine and I'll just be here when you need me and him saying that made me feel really accepted by him you know that he really did just want mm. what was best for me um so that that first year of of getting sober um it was hard you know I had to face a lot of things that I'd not faced um but I was able to you know just sort of a little bit at a time start unwrapping some of it and getting an understanding of how I'd ended up where I'd ended up and and learning to be a little bit nicer to myself about it mm. as well you know because we've talked a lot about shame um over the last hour and I think the way I spoke to myself around my addiction around my sexuality around everything was not conducive of change mm. you know like if if you're saying to someone constantly you've messed everything up you don't deserve help you've you should be ashamed of yourself mm. are you gonna trust that person you know are you gonna listen to them no like it doesn't place you in a position to change like i needed people around me who showed me how to begin accepting myself or what i was and and those healthy role models as well so seeing other people 
who'd been in similar positions to me, mm. who were now sober and seemingly happy. Um, yeah, it enabled me to start doing the same. Um, going on from that, I left Bangkok, <laughs> moved back to the UK, mm. um, and I retrained. Um, I retrained as a therapist. The reason I did that, you know, part of sort of support groups, there's a lot of helping other people involved and, mm. you know, helping people who are further you're helped by people who are further on. Yeah. And I can't find the words for the opposite of that. Um, but I started trying to help people who were trying to get sober. And I found almost to my own surprise that I was good at it. Um, people list people liked talking to me, people trusted me, um, I knew how to listen. And and because of the things that had happened to me you know, because of the darkness that had been there, mm. because of the trauma, because of those those wounds. I could hold the information, you know, it didn't scare me. Like, when I was suicidal, no one knew how to talk to me. Mm. But I could talk to me now, you know, um, because I've been there. And I think Russell Brand actually said this, but it's an old proverb, like from the wound comes the salve. And I really like it, you know, mm. um, and I'm not glamorizing the things that happened to me. I'm not, you know, they all happen so that I could be helpful now, but what I've been able to take from those very real hurts, those very real pains is the ability to heal, not just myself, but to be a part of other people's healing process. Mm. And you know, that was in 2017. And um, when I was 20, 26, I got sober. It's been six years. I've not had a drink. Well done. Not had a drug. I've not cut myself. I've moved countries. I've retrained. And my life is amazing. You know, I love my life. It's, and you know, I sort of say that if I wrote it down on paper, you'd probably think, what is he talking about? You know what I mean? I live in a, in a house share, all those things. But I'm at peace. And I I used to be, I used to have the worst mental health out of anybody that I knew. And I'm a therapist. Mm. To me, that's miraculous. Mm. Yeah. I think that um, it is miraculous and it's amazing. Thank you. Um, no, I'm so happy to hear you talk like that, you know, and, and that point that you just made around doesn't matter like where you live or how you live or what things you have, does it? It's you've got inner peace and yeah, that is totally miraculous given the experiences that you've had and given the, you know, if we were to talk about the a scale of severity for addiction, it I think it'd be fair to say you're near the top end of that scale, right? When you were in it. Um so now to be in a place where you're helping other people and you've got that inner peace. I think that's incredible. And there's something really in that when you were talking about kind of role models and being able to help other people because of your own kind of lived experiences. And um, I think there's something around role modeling or mentoring or peer to peer, like whatever the right language is, but kind of in that space it's that identification with other people who are like you who 
think like you who have had experiences like you maybe and the trust that you're able to put into I guess those relationships and those connections there's a place for therapy right because that's kind of getting the proper professional support that you need but I think there's something around kind of peer-to-peer and and role modeling because it it helps you to recognize that going back to the very start of the conversation you're not alone you're not different you know you're not there's not anything that's wrong with you and these negative thought patterns that that you spoke about in terms of oh well what's wrong with me and it's my fault and why am why am i like this it, i think having those role models helps you to address that and feel more normal right for want of a better description because what is normal what you know what does that even mean um so yeah i i really identify with that and i think it's really powerful it so what was your motivation then for how did you transition into you've obviously gone right i'm gonna go all in on this um and i'm gonna help people professionally and that's gonna be my profession so what did that journey look like for you I mean, it was tentative at first, mm. you know, I, um, I was nervous, you know, like are people going to, th- can someone as, someone who's been as ill as me do this job? Mm. Um, a lot of the old kind of thinking, you know, like, well, who am I to give people advice? Like I said, I was one of the most mentally unwell people I knew all the way through my training. I thought there was going to come a point where I revealed something about my history. And it was mostly about the suicide attempt that I was the most scared of telling people, mm. And they'd find that out and they'd say, oh, you're not going to be able to do this. Mm. You're not going to be able to stay well enough to do this. Sort of, who do you think you are? Get out of the, get out of here. That didn't happen. Mm. And, you know, really sort of what you've just said about that, that sort of role modeling, like, sadly, addiction, there is still a lot of stigma around it. And mm. mental health, there's still a lot of stigma around it. It's getting, it's getting better. It's definitely getting better, but it is still there. And... I think a big part of the motivation for me wanting to to work in the field and I work in, which is with mental health related, addiction related, um, is because that's the thing that feels really true and meaningful to me. Mm. You know, it's like the front lines of life, you know, and when I was a teacher, for example, I used to be so frightened someone was going to find out that I used to be an addict, you know, they were going to find out about my past. It felt like my dirty little secret. Mm even though I was two years sober, three years sober, I still felt like it was this thing I was supposed to be ashamed of. And I think part of retraining, as much as it does come from a a, a desire to help and be a positive part of of fixing this problem in Mm -hmm. in whatever way that looks like, is I'm not ashamed and I'm not going to act as if I'm ashamed. Like, that's not my stuff, you know? Um, My... My story is my story, you know, and I'm proud of it. I'm proud of where I'm stood. And I think you see so much in the media still about addiction, you know, junkies, all those words, you know, mm. that horrible stuff around it. It's if there's a little a little boy, you know, 14, 15, experimenting with drug, drugs, getting into trouble. What are they seeing about themselves there? You know, oh, I'm a junkie, I'm this bad thing. And then we go into that sort of self-fulfilling prophecy thing. Um, and I think it is really important with recovery in whatever way it looks like. And I'm not, I, I wouldn't 
for me, for me, to recover out loud a little bit sometimes, you know, mm, and to, mm. to tell those stories. And, you know, obviously we're both gay men. When we think about how did the stigma around being gay end, yeah. you know, like it was, it was people coming out, you know, it was people telling their stories. It was people realizing that the neighbors weren't these terrible, terrible things. They were real people who were every bit as nuanced and kind and everything as anyone else. And I think if me telling my story here, for example, or mm. me having a, a website where I'm an openly gay addict therapist mm. can help alleviate a little bit of the stigma somewhere, then I want to be a part of that. Totally, totally. And it that kind of early thought process that you had around what will people think because of my background it's you can really reframe that can't you right and and flip it on its head because actually given the people that you're looking to support that adds value that adds credibility mm. you know when I was in rehab my therapist was an ex-heroin addict and he'd been in prison you know he'd had all of these experiences but he was 13 years clean and at no point did I ever think I don't want therapy from this guy um, it, it almost adds to the pull and actually this guy's turned his life around. So I need to get a bit of that. It's back to that role modeling thing. Yeah. And, and I feel it adds, you know, I've worked with quite a few people in addiction now professionally and the majority of them at some point ask, I think this profession attracts a certain type of person and mm. often, not always, but often it's because of similar experiences themselves. And they've all asked, not all, a lot have asked. And I think the reason they ask is, is because of the fear of being judged, you mm. know. There's a shorthand that exists in me saying I'm an addict when I'm working with these people, it takes away the stigma straight away. They know they're not going to be judged yeah. because I've been there. Yeah. And how is someone going to get better if someone's sat in judgment of them? You know, if if someone's bringing in all these beliefs, well, well, you, well, you did do it to yourself. You know, yeah. it is self-inflicted. Yeah. And I think so often when you when you hear the stories of addiction, you know, and it's I understand why it's hard to have sympathy sometimes. I do understand that, but... Yeah, I think people used to look at me and think, how could he do this to himself? How could he do this? But I think when you listen to people's stories, it changes from not how could they do it, but how could they not do it? Mm. You know, how how could I not become an addict? Mm. You know, when I was growing up around so much grief and pain and it was just readily available. Of course I did. Of course that's what happened. And yeah, I do think it's, you know, that the therapist I was talking about wasn't an addict and he helped me tremendously. You know, I'm not, it, there's nuance to mm -hmm. it, but I think it does, at the very least, it assures that there's not going to be judgment. And if that's in someone's head, I think it takes it away. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, thank you for coming on and um, talking about this stuff. I'm going to ask you one last question that I ask everyone. Um, what's next for you? What's next? Well, hopefully I've just started recently my private practice in therapy. Um, I'm hoping to start growing that. Um, and you know what? I want to just continue mm. living my life and 
this has been a big thing for me having this conversation. Um, you know, I've only very recently launched a private practice and part of that has been going public. And I say that as if I'm a celebrity <laughs> and anyone cares. But um, now if you Google my name, you'll find out that I'm a gay alcoholic addict and that didn't used to be the case. And I yeah. think this has been a really good way of, of just smashing through the fears involved of, you know, I am... I am what I am. Yeah. And what I am needs no excuses, Carl. Indeed, funny. Indeed. Well, yeah, thank you for coming on. Um, I think just hearing your story and the turnaround is going to be so powerful for so many people and shining a spotlight on therapy as a tool and a solution, right, in terms of getting better is we live in a world where mental health how we talk about mental health today versus 10 years ago is very different, right? It's much mm. more out in the open. But I do still think there's some kind of stigma or nervousness attached to the perceptions of having to go and see a therapist. Like, what does that mean about the individual? Something's wrong. And the more that um, we can normalize those conversations and you talking about your experience with therapy as someone on the receiving end of it, but also now how you use that to help other people is is amazing um so yeah thank you where can we hear more about your practice and and where can people find you so i do i do have a website um it's www.swgcounseling.co.uk you can find me there i've got a blog up there um and also i've got an instagram page again it's at swgcounseling you'll be able to find me um yeah, that's where you can find me. Nice. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming on the show, Stephen. Yeah, well, thank you for, thanks for having me. Pleasure. Thanks so much for listening. I really hope you got something from it. What Next is recorded at Stave Studios, which is at Stave underscore studio on Insta. If you want to get in touch with me through Insta, it's at whatnext.podcast. Or you can email me at carl at whatnextpodcast.co.uk. For new episodes, subscribe on all the main podcast platforms. I'd love it if you can also leave us a review as this will help us to reach more people. Remember, if you're thinking of quitting or have recently quit, you're not alone. So keep listening for what's next.